right, once again, good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. Uh, thanks for everyone who did come out to the theology conference yesterday where uh, Dr. Lanier talked about the canon of scripture. He wore this microphone, and so I feel five degrees smarter than I actually was. And, and so I'm just gonna imbibe it. I'm gonna wear it at home, to bed. I mean, everywhere, just, you know, that was an awesome time. Thanks for coming. If you didn't make it, uh, we will be posting, making those um, sessions available online momentarily. But you know, interestingly, one of Dr. Lanier's running jokes was that he was just here warming up for Andrew Peterson. And as you heard in the video, Andrew Peterson is going to be with us, with Four Oaks. And he is undoubtedly my favorite musician, author. Um, he's a theologian. Um, he, he, music is just the means by which he brings the word of God. And he's going to be headlining our Easter weekend. Or, or rather, Jesus is headlining our Easter weekend. Andrew Peterson is going to help us with that. You know, interestingly, uh, Easter is one of those hallmark holidays, right, where people who may not normally come to church will come to church with just an invitation, right? And research shows that people are more likely to come at Easter, I think, than any other religious holiday. And so there's three things I want us to do as we head into Holy Week, which is hard to believe coming up in about a month right now. Three things I want you to do. Number one, I want you to pray for gospel impact. That all of these services from Good Friday to Easter morning to the concert, all of them will work in concert together to, to bring glory to God, to draw people to himself. Um, just to pray for gospel impact. All the folks who are going to be involved in serving and ministering over that time. Number two, and invite a friend. I mean, just the singular most important element of whether someone will come to church with you, I know this is brain surgery, is that they are invited. So invite a friend, bring them to church. Don't underestimate, Four Oaks, the power of God's people gathered together. And then, and then finally, number three, buy your Andrew Peterson tickets. I mean, I, I was just thinking this morning, I was like, oh no, we have not bought our tickets yet. And we've sold a lot, so we need to do that. So you need to do that too. Um, Four Oaks, as we take our offering this morning, God has placed us in a really strategic place as a, as a church family to make gospel impact. And, and that is in part, we know, yes, by the sheer grace of God, but by the grace of God stirring in the hearts of his people to be generous. This church family has been exceedingly generous, um, has, has viewed their giving as an act of worship, as, viewed their giving as a means of God using to build his church and kingdom. And let me just say, it's your faithfulness God is using extraordinarily. And so if you are called to give this morning, um, there's several ways to do that. You can do that online. You can text to give. There's an offering box in the back. Just a reminder as we, as we commit these gifts to the Lord, we don't give in order to receive God's grace. We've received God's grace, thus we give. Let's pray and commit these gifts to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you're doing here this season. And Lord, this is all by your grace, and we don't say that simply as a, as a pithy religious slogan. We know it's true. And so, Father, do a work of grace this season um, all across the city of Tallahassee through all of your faithful churches. But, Lord, what you've called us to uniquely here at Four Oaks, Lord, pray that you uh, would use Holy Week 
in a unique way, special way, powerful way this year. So Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you would have your way in our hearts, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. As we continue our trek through Matthew's gospel, going on a little over a year now, you know, history is replete, is it not, with stories of how victory was just snatched from the jaws of defeat. You may have heard that before, right? Where, where there's these miraculous turnarounds. What looked like certain doom has turned almost instantaneously, instantaneously to, to victory, improbably, right? We, we, we know stories like that. But there's also history is full of stories, now catch the wording here, of how defeat was snatched from the jaws of victory. Where, where, where one side seems to be winning, where one side seems to be excelling only to suffer a humiliating turn of the tables. I was, saw my very first, last night, Masters Golf commercial. Oh, and my heart was strangely warmed. Think about Augusta National and that blessed sacred day coming up, not on Easter this year, thankfully. And but my mind immediately went to all the epic collapses that have happened there over the years, whether it's Greg Norman or Rory McIlroy. I mean, these are the greatest players, right? You know, it just reminded me, you know, golf is, is one of those lonely games, right, where you're on this island and everybody is watching you and you can blame no one, right? Just ask Phil Mickelson when he plays a U.S. Open, right? The runner-up six times, why am I mentioning all this? Well, we see one of those dramatic turnarounds this morning. One of those, it looks victorious, but then victory is, is seemingly snatched away. The highest of highs is followed by the lowest of lows. And of course, I'm talking about the Apostle Peter. If you were with us last week, you know that Peter is now on an all-time spiritual high, is he not? He's just gotten back from church camp. He is fired up for Jesus. And last week we saw how he, he had made this amazing confession. It's the most extraordinary confession about Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And, and what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus do? He blesses Simon Peter. He gives him a new name. He, he, he gives him a mission. And we're like, finally, the disciples, Peter, they finally have clarity on the identity of the Messiah, who Jesus is, finally, at long last. Yet as we pick it up this morning, while Peter may comprehend Jesus' identity, what we're going to find is he does not yet comprehend Jesus' mission. And Peter's misunderstanding, and we can't sugarcoat this, is so erroneous, so potentially catastrophic, that Jesus must take it public. Jesus must make an example of it. Jesus must directly confront it and correct it right then and there. And in doing so, it's an act of grace uh, for Peter and the other disciples, and it's an act of grace for us to remind us of not just who Jesus is, 
but what he has come to do and how that makes a claim on us. And so that's where we're going this morning. We're going to be in Matthew 16, verses 21 through the end of the chapter. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together this morning. Matthew 16, verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let me pray one more time. So Father, this, this is antithetical to everything that we have been raised to believe in our natural state, in our cultural milieu, and in, in the world. Lord, it seems so counterproductive, counterintuitive, we're just tempted to say this is foolishness. We're, we're tempted to, to be offended by these sort of preposterous words. But Lord, let us not think like a man. Give us eyes to see like you see. Lord, we ask for your help now. In your name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. The title of this message is The Messiah's Mission. Last week it was the Messiah's identity. This is the Messiah's mission. And there's three things I want to direct your attention to in the text. First of all, the necessity of the Messiah's mission. Secondly, the nature of the Messiah's mission. And then lastly, the nowness of the Messiah's mission. And yes, that's a new word, just so you know. Okay, it's a new word. We'll get there. The necessity of the Messiah's mission. Look at verse 21. It says, from that time, which, which is Matthew's way of saying, he sprinkles that term across his gospel whenever we're entering a new phase or, or period in Jesus' ministry. And here it marks a new emphasis in Jesus' teaching and ministry. Now, Jesus has alluded to this before, but what he is going to be emphasizing every step of the way towards Jerusalem is that, fellas, we're going to Jerusalem where I am going to die. And this is not going to be a random act. This is, when he mentions the scribes and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, 
This is going to be an organized opposition. This is going to be an official death sentence. And, and it awaits me in Jerusalem, and that's where I'm going. That's where I must go. And this is what Jesus begins to rehearse for them. Like, a, like every step they take to Jerusalem, he beats it like a drum. And, it, and, it's, and it's meant to, to sort of increase the urgency about what's happening. Now look back at the text in verse 21. This is an interesting word that Jesus uses. He says that he must go to Jerusalem. I mean, that's a super strong word. It doesn't mean like he might go. He's thinking about going he's keeping his plans open so he can shift at the last minute, right? The word means absolutely necessary. Jesus says it is absolutely necessary that I go to Jerusalem. It means to be compelled to do something at all costs. You could even put the label on this, this was a divine necessity, and the reason Jesus uses this word, remember Jesus never does random, the reason Jesus uses this word is because he has a singular mission. There are many things that Jesus came to earth to do, but there is one singular thing that lies at the heart of his mission that if he does not do this thing, then his entire mission is a failure. Jesus came to die as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. Nothing could be more crystal clear from the scriptures. And there's just, I'll just mention two references just here in Matthew's gospel. Matthew 20, 28, this is Jesus speaking. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, he came to purchase salvation. What does Jesus say over the wine and the bread at the Last Supper, Matthew 26. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Could, could, could this not be any more crystal clear? Jesus says this is not an unfortunate circumstance, a divine accident. This is part of the divine plan. In fact, it's actually part of the covenant, the eternal covenant, that the Heavenly Father and I have made together to save my people. Now, at this point, let me just say this. Have you ever played that game? And I know you have. Three truths and a lie. You share th four things about yourself, three are quasi-true, and then one is blatantly false, right? Now, there is a variation of this going on with the Jews and the disciples at this point in Jewish history. Because if you were to play a word association game with a Jew and the word Messiah, and you gave them a list of four words and said, which of these are not like the other? Which of these don't belong? Here they are, here they are, ready? Victory domination, conquering death. Would not have taken a Dr. Lanier type to pick that word out, right? You see, now understand this. The idea of the suffering Messiah, a suffering servant, is all over the Old Testament. 
Isaiah particularly. But those teachings, and this ought to be a lesson for us, were often overlooked and ignored why they didn't fit the cultural narrative. They didn't fit the political narrative. They didn't fit the religious narrative. They were offensive. I mean, imagine, I mean, what did Paul say? He said the, the, the suffering Messiah, crucified Messiah to, to the Jew, that's, that's a stumbling block. That's scandalous. It's, a, it's offensive. It goes in the face of everything they had been taught in the synagogue growing up. And so obviously someone needs to come and correct Jesus, do they not? Because Jesus clearly has gotten this horribly wrong. And so who volunteers? Everybody's favorite apostle. Look at verse 22. Now, just, just, just try to just let this sit on you and, and imagine this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, rebuke is a strong word. Peter is not offering a helpful suggestion. The word for rebuke is the same one that Jesus used when he rebuked the wind and the waves. And they obeyed immediately. Remember that? It's like Jesus puts his hand on, I'm sorry, Peter puts his hand on Jesus' shoulder and pulls him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord. Literally, there's no way this can happen. Jesus, you, you are gravely mistaken. <laughs> I mean, it's a play on words. God forbid, God, that this would ever happen to you. See what he does there? I remember a Little League baseball game, and this was back in the 70s, and you weren't allowed to show up your opponent, okay? I mean, now it's an art form, right? And parents, you're the absolute worst. I just want to say that. And I remember, though, in this game, I played for the Dodgers, I hit a triple or something, and the winning run came in, and I got to third base, and I remember I just raised my hands in victory like this. Now, my dad, because he's dad, he's awesome, but he was also my coach. And I remember he pulled me aside, just like a dad pulls you aside. And let's just say I never did that again. That's Peter's posture to Jesus. Now look at verse 23. The Greek cannot capture the essence of this. I mean, I'm sorry, the English cannot capture the essence of what this says in the Greek. But verse 23, it says he turned. That's what Jesus did. He turned. It's hard to underestimate the intensity of this word. It means to pivot and reverse course. It's like you're walking down the hall and you hear something, someone say something that's so incredibly wrong, offensive. It has to, you immediately what you stop, this is a typical parent move, right? And you pivot in the opposite direction. You're like, as much as I would not rather deal with this right now, I am dealing with this right now it's that serious 
It literally means he turned on Peter. He turned on him. And what does he say? One of the most memorable or... (laughs) One of the most memorable, what shall we say, rebukes in all of Scripture. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance. That word hindrance is literally scandalon, scandal, obstacle. It's like he's saying, out of my way, Peter. You are in my way. Move aside, because I am on a singular mission right now. It's like when you are at home and your child is doing something that is seriously a a threat to self or others, right? They're running towards the street and the car's coming down the hill. No matter what you're doing, you're putting it aside, you are turning and you are making a beeline. That's, That's the idea. And the fact that Jesus calls Peter Satan, I don't think this means that Peter is possessed by a demon. It means that I think Peter was being influenced, tempted, if you will, by a great demonic temptation. And friends, we have seen this demonic temptation before. And in fact, these words, get behind me, Satan, are almost an exact form of the phraseology that we see in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that? when Satan was tempting Jesus to abandon his mission and he was offering Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Let's read it together. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, get behind me. Same phrase, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. What is happening here? I think it's very clear when you look at the entire context. Satan is simply attempting to divert Jesus from his mission. Jesus, you don't need the cross. There's, why why all the pain? You could have the gain of the world. Just throw yourself off this mountain. The angels will catch you. Just call your army down. They will deliver you. By the way, this I believe this was an ongoing temptation in the life of Jesus. In the garden, Lord, let not my will be done, but yours. On the cross, could he not call a legion of angels and bring himself down? He was taunted to do so. See, this is always the temptation for God's people, right? Glory without cross. Gain without pain. Can I just say something right here? First of all, do do you understand now the force of what Jesus is contending with? And this might appear unloving that Jesus is not the gentle and lowly Jesus. No, no, no. Your eternal future is at stake here. Peter's eternal future is at stake here. 
If there is no, please hear this, if there is no suffering Messiah, there is no saving Messiah. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't listen to Peter? Because guess what? Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. He's thinking like a fallen man. He, Peter's not omniscient. He's not the gracious, sovereign God who always does what's right. Only one person has that title. You know, sometimes, oftentimes, in the midst of our suffering and pain, let's be honest, we don't know what we're talking about either. We, we question God. We accuse Him. We raise our fist. When suffering, death, disappointment, tragedy touches our lives, we can be just like Peter. Far be it from you, Lord. Forbid it, Lord. What are you doing? Don't you know if I, held, if I had a healthy body, all the things that I could do? Don't you know if I had this job, what a platform for ministry this would be? Don't you know if I had these kind of resources or this kind of marriage or these kind of relationships, what would be possible? And not to overstate this, but I think it's true. At that moment, we've put ourselves in the position of God. And God says, get behind me. Maybe you're in a Peter moment right now where you have been rebuked by Christ, meaning you've been told no. No, Peter, I'm not doing that. Because if I did, you have no idea of the catastrophic consequences for you in the history of the world. And whether God this season for Oaks is saying yes, no, maybe, wait, or maybe you just hear spiritual crickets, it's all the same thing. His call to you and his call to me is trust me. Walk by faith. Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And to help us in this, Jesus now reminds us of the nature of his mission. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the necessity of the mission. Here is the nature of the mission. Look back at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is perhaps, let's be honest, one of the most well-known verses in all of the New Testament. Maybe it's on a prayer card or a poster or something like that. Yet I, I would submit it's one of the most sanitized, domesticated concepts that we wrestle with as Christians that I'll be honest, we oftentimes boil down to sort of pithy statements. You know, Pastor Paul, I'm on this diet now. And let me tell you, I'm really bearing my cross. No potato chips. I mean, it's a, it's a struggle, right? Pastor Paul, it's so hard at home. I've got to come home and turn off the TV and actually help my kids bathe themselves and get to bed. I am bearing my cross, Pastor Paul, right? Now, I, I, don't, I don't mean to... All of these things can be important, and all of them involve an element of self-denial. However, when, when that's the first thing we go to, 
we miss the impact that this statement would have had on the disciples when they heard it. Because remember this, the disciples had not, the church had not yet adopted the cross as its universal symbol, right? This is way before the keychains and the necklaces and all of those things, the steeples on top of churches like this one. This is before that. This is before they know that Jesus is going to go be crucified. See, we have to remember that as a disciple, Jesus was their rabbi. Jesus was their master. He was their teacher, which made them what? Students. And in the rabbinic culture at the time, you were discipled to be like your master, which means that they lived together. They ate together. They lived in a commune together. They traveled together. They were taught together. And the singular goal of rabbinic Jewish discipleship was what? Be like your master. And that's what they were doing. So if Jesus is saying that my central mission is to go to Jerusalem and die, you know, not the sharpest pencils in the box, but let's put two and two together. Then thus must be the central mission for you too. You see, the idea of a cross was not superficial spirituality for a Jew in the first century. It was an ominous reality that constantly hung over the head of every Jewish person. Because remember, crucifixion was not for citizens. Citizens, like Paul, got a beheading. Crucifixion was for commoners. It was the most common mode of capital punishment. It was for criminals, outlaws, insurrectionists, lawbreakers, disturbers of the peace. It was, at that point in time in history, the most horrific form of death and punishment. I'm not going to go into all the details, but you know, being nailed with spikes to wood beams, slowly suffocating on a cross for hours, bleeding out. It, was, it, was, it sent shivers up the spine of every Jew. But Jesus here isn't even simply referring to the act of crucifixion. He's referring to what happens on the way. See, before one was crucified, and every Jew would know this, you were whipped and scourged and beaten to an inch of your life. And then as a bloody pulp, you were asked to do the most shame-filled thing that you could ever imagine. You were asked to carry your own death instrument on your back through a spectacle of people which was all part of a public procession of shaming. All while your family, your friends, and everybody is looking on. This would be like in our modern day, you're, you're the condemned. It's your responsibility to unload the electric chair with the forklift. You have to build your own scaffolding in which you are going to hang. You have to dig your own grave. You have to clean, polish, and load the guns of the firing squad that will kill you. You, you, you get the idea now? The disciples would have understood full well what this imagery meant. It was startling. It was shocking. 
You see, instead of them riding victorious into the temple in Jerusalem in a few months' time, where Jesus would be crowned king, and they would be made his cabinet, his ministers who would rule with authority, they were to be made a spectacle of. They were to be humiliated. They were to be killed. And this is what Jesus says. This is what it means, fellas, to follow me. Now, this had a literal fulfillment for all the, but one of the apostles. All of them were martyred except for John, who church history tells us was thrown into a vat of boiling oil, but somehow survived and was condemned to a rock quarry called Patmos. But they would have understood that this doesn't just refer to their physical death, although it most certainly referred to their physical death, but this was a total claim on their lives. This was not a one-time thing. See, the, the, the nature of the language here is that cross-bearing, and the way Jesus uses it, is an ongoing, active, perpetual posture of the follower of Christ. It's not one and done. It's not, I bore my cross in this situation, thank goodness, that is over. Let's get back to normal. The followers of Jesus are literally always on the way to death because that is how we identify with Christ. I want you to think about what the Apostle Paul says, and, and maybe this can, can bring it home a little more. 2 Corinthians 4.10, and we, we read this for us. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. Do you hear that? The ongoing act? For Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. As I was a kid in the 70s, but I came of spiritual age in the 80s. And there was lots of talk at that time in, in the church about the victorious Christian life. Accept Jesus, get better grades. Follow Christ, he'll give you great success to use your platform as a ministry to other people. Make Jesus first, he will make you the captain of the volleyball team. And can I just say, that is, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. You see, Christianity comes with a warning label. To follow Jesus, Jesus is saying, is not simply to sign up for occasional embarrassment when someone finds out that you go to church. It's not periodic uncomfortableness when you actually have the courage to pray over your meal in public, right? To follow Jesus, here's what he means, is to identify in every way with the sufferings of Christ physically. So when you suffer physically, it is a reminder to you that you are following in the physical sufferings of Christ. It is an opportunity to glorify Christ, to show that his love is better than life. When you suffer from isolation, when you suffer from loneliness, it is a reminder that Jesus hung alone on that cross. 
when you suffer with great temptation, you were to be reminded that Jesus, listen, he didn't sin, but, but what does the writer of Hebrews says? He was tempted in every way, just as we are. He, he understands all of these things are God's means of making us more like him. They're God's means of us seeing the beauty of Christ and the hope of eternal joy. It's God's way of helping other people to see that my grasp on this life is an open palm. And we have to ask, well, Pastor Paul, that's great. <laughs> but why in the world would anyone agree to such a path of self-denial? Why not just eat, drink, tomorrow we may die? And Jesus gives us the clearest answer possible. Look at verse 25. For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, Jesus uses the language of the marketplace here, right? These are economic terms of buying, receiving, exchanging. And Jesus uses them because, guess what? He knows how we think. If I'm going to give up something now, what is it that I'm getting in return in the future? See, we understand exchanging money for merchandise. What, what, what's the merchandise here? Jesus says it's true life. It's eternal life. It's life with me. And Jesus is simply saying, if you knew that you would forfeit this temporal world and all its comforts and affluences and, and pleasures, would you not do this if you knew that I've given you the universe? I haven't given you a time-limited decade of 60, 70, 80 years if you're lucky. I've given you me and the enjoyment of me and the enjoyment of my people forever and ever and ever. And Jesus wants to make this contrast, this choice so clear to us that he must rebuke Peter and say, get behind me. Jim Elliot says it this way, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Lastly, and then we'll be done, the nowness of the Messiah's mission, and we'll spend just less time on this. When we talk about the nowness of the Messiah's mission, what we're pressing forward here is the necessity of making a decision today, an immediate decision. These last two verses are meant to show us how urgent this matter is. This is not something to put off till tomorrow. This is not something to say, well, you know, I'll, that, that's helpful, Paul, Pastor Paul. I'll put that one a little way, but I've got a life to live. See, I'm in my, I'm, I'm young. I've got lots to do, or, or, or I'm working hard this season to make a down payment for the future. I don't have time for all this Jesus stuff. 
And Jesus reminds us something in verse 27, look. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Jesus says here, he, he is the Son of Man, in the theme of Daniel 7, will one day come to rule and adjudicate the final judgment. There will be a termination of human history on this planet. There'll be a new planet. There'll be a new heavens. There'll be a new earth. But Jesus says at that time, there will be a reckoning. There will be a sorting out a sorting out of sorts. And of course, I believe he speaks here of the second coming, which, by the way, will come how? Like a thief in the night. Why does, why does Paul use that metaphor in 1 Thessalonians? Because when the thief comes in the night, you're not expecting it, you're asleep. You're slumbered. Do you know what it's like when you're roused in the middle of the night and something's going on? You're disoriented. You're confused. You're like, is this happening? It takes you a minute to get your bearings. This is what the coming of Jesus will be like. It'll transform everything in an instant. Nothing will matter. That's happened before in that sense. So I think he's speaking of the second coming. But then he says something in verse 28 that's interesting. He says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, can I just say, whole tomes of ink have been spilled on this verse, okay? What does this mean? This is gonna some of this is going to happen before while people, some of these disciples are still living, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How would the disciples have understood this? And, and the list is endless, right? Well, Jesus is speaking of his transfiguration, which we're going to look at next week. Or this is the resurrection, right? Jesus comes in his power. Or maybe it's his ascension, where he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Maybe this is Pentecost, where the power of God and Jesus is poured out on the church some even say well no this is referring to the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem in 70 AD I'm going to take the coward's way out right now and I'm going to say I don't want to go down that rabbit hole this morning because we're going to talk about it in more detail in Matthew 24 when we get to the Olivet Discourse but here is the one thing that I think we can say for certain about this verse while the son of man is coming one day in the future. The Son of Man is already here. He's here right now. He, he's come with power through his resurrection and the pouring out of his spirit and the, his gathered people, which means that you and I are called to live our lives with the utmost spiritual urgency. I think that's the point here. The eschatological clock is ticking. Not to be morbid, your clock is ticking. My clock is ticking. 
And so if you're someone this morning who wants to find your life, you want to find your identity, Jesus says, I'll tell you how. Lose your life. Lose your identity. And follow me. When you lose your life, you'll find it. Because you realize Jesus lost his life for us. Jesus went to a literal cross where he denied himself so that he could purchase forgiveness of sins and eternal life for all those who would trust in him. So what say you? Who do you say that Jesus is? He is the Christ, the Son of the living God who leads his people in a glorious procession to death so that we might have life everlasting. And I ask you to bow your heads and ask you just to spend a moment or two reflecting on God's word this morning and asking him to prepare your hearts for coming to the table. And as you do that, I'm going to ask our, our leaders to come and to serve our elements.